the Harmony of Interest series, where we will explore ideas that positively shape our world. I'm very excited to talk to Eric Meyer, who is the founder and executive director of Generation Atomic, with a mission to energize and empower today's generations to advocate for a nuclear future. Eric, thanks so much for your time. Hey, you're welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So before we talk about your organization, could you talk a little bit about your background and where you came up and... Uh, you know, I, I first heard about you uh, singing, actually, about nuclear. So I would love to, uh, the audience to hear a little bit about your background. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, I grew up in a, a really small town uh, on the fringes of the Minnesota prairie, about 15 miles from the South Dakota border, uh, called Tyler, Minnesota. Uh, and the kind of most significant part about this area is uh, it's on a... Uh, geologic formation called the Buffalo Ridge. And that makes it a higher plateau when the kind of glaciers ran out of steam, uh, really good farmland and uh, a really good wind speeds. Uh, so, you know, growing up there, I was constantly uh, surrounded by, by wind towers. Uh, also, uh, it was kind of a, a poster child location for ethanol. Um, so I was constantly thinking about sustainable energy. I remember conversations with my dad, uh, you know, when we're driving uh, to, uh, we, uh, I was a, a roofer with him. He runs a roofing business and you're going by all these cornfields, having the conversation like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if uh, we didn't have to pump any oil out of the ground and we could just grow everything we needed. Uh, so I think, you know, those are kind of my roots of, of thinking about um, uh, the problem of climate change and um, how we should really be searching for a solution where there's energy abundance rather than thinking about all the different ways we can uh, cut back. You know, you, certainly there's there's room for more efficiency and all of that, but there, when there's three billion people in the world that use less less electricity in a year than a refrigerator does, uh, we need a lot more energy out there. <laughs> um, and then, you know, fast forward a few years to uh, college, um, you know, I'm studying music at the time, thinking uh, maybe, a, maybe be a music teacher. I was having a lot of success singing, maybe be an opera singer. Um, and uh, I, it's just one of those minor things you think wouldn't make a, a huge change in your life, but a friend sent me a, a TED talk uh, about molten salt reactors. And uh, in it, you know, the, the speaker was talking about how a, a golf ball sized chunk of thorium in this case, um, but uranium also applies, but a golf ball sized chunk could provide the lifetime supply of energy for one person. And I had never realized the energy density of nuclear fission up until that moment. And that was like a complete switch flipped in my mind. I started thinking back, well, wait a second, what do I actually know about nuclear right now? It was all based on the Simpsons, one hundred percent. You know, never talked about it in in high school or or anything like that, um, which I, I think is a, a problem that <laughs> needs to be addressed. We need to have more uh, uh, all encompassing energy education in schools. Um, but anyway, at at that point, you know, I I started thinking about you know what I could do. Uh, you know, well, you know, I'm having some success singing. Maybe I'll rewrite some some arias. Uh, I just recently performed uh, Carmen in uh, Washington State with the um, Idaho, what was it? The Idaho, or wait, like it was right on the border between Washington and Idaho. So I was like, is it the Washington or Idaho Symphony? <laughs> <laughs> it was a few years ago. Um, I think it was a Washington Symphony. I, 
uh, anyway, uh, performed with them. And so, you know, at that point, going to the, uh, decided to go to the, the, the climate talks. And, you know, once I, I realized the uh, energy density of nuclear power, I, I thought, man, I got to, I got to do something about this. Um, but uh, it, it wasn't really until uh, 2012 when uh, the, the city I lived in and was going to school in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, experienced a 500 year flood. Uh, and uh, I was over at a friend's house playing some video games and uh, I realized, wow, this is actually, <laughs> I should try to get home here. And uh, on the drive home, there was a spot where a, usually a, a tiny creek had become a, a, a raging river. And uh, I, I uh, wasn't able to, to get through an intersection and pretty soon, you know, the water's up to the, the window and I'm uh, hopping out of the car and uh, swimming to safety. <laughs> and uh, at that moment, I decided, you know what? There are probably enough opera singers in the world, but with climate change getting worse, uh, what we need is more nuclear advocates. Nobody's, nobody's standing up for this technology. It could play such an important role. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, you know, started to figure out, you, you're not sure what exactly you're going to do at that moment, but I eventually figured out, Hey, I should, uh, uh, I should tour a nu nuclear plant, went to Diablo Canyon in 2014 and, uh, met some people who worked there, learned more about it. Um, Diablo and, Canyon's in California, and it's one of the most beautiful areas in the world from the pictures that I've seen. Oh, yeah, it is uh, astoundingly beautiful. And, you know, right on, on either side of it is uh, a nature reserve. Um, the, the Point Bouchon Trail is uh, just north of it. And I've done some uh, uh, native species bird watching, bird monitoring with uh, the Mothers for Nuclear <laughs> up there. Um, and, uh, you know, and that one plant is uh, about 10% of California's clean electricity. It's just um, amazing. Or actually 10% of all of its electricity, about 20% of the clean electricity. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, so I went to, went to grad school uh, to learn a little bit more about organizing, about managing a, a nonprofit, about uh, political engagement. Uh, and uh, right out of college, I, 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 I wanted to start a nonprofit right away, but uh, I just, a couple friends of mine had, had jobs at the Minnesota Nurses Association, and uh, it was just, you know, too good of a, an offer to pass up at that moment. I was like, all right, let's, let's pay down some student loans for, for a while here. Um, but it really gave me an opportunity to build my organizing skills and, and learn a lot about the labor movement at the time. Um, I saw that. Yeah, you're, you've done union organizing, labor organizing as kind of your start. You, you studied after music um, advocacy and political leadership, I believe. And yeah. you've done campaign work, uh, campaign manager work. You've been civically engaged for some time before yeah. coming to Generation Atomic and doing a lot of work with the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That also really picked my interest. Yeah, um, I... You know, I, I feel like uh, organized labor uh, could be and and uh, and should be one of the champions of of this power source. And we gotta, you know, it's I think it's partially on my shoulders, but other nuclear advocates to uh, make the case to folks that are in the nuclear industry who haven't 
uh, maybe fully realized how important they are at this juncture in history um, to, to help them see that and uh, show them ways to get involved in what we're doing. Um, cool. but, uh, yeah, yeah, so gener Generation Atomic, uh, what is it? And uh, talk a little bit about the process of starting it. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so, you know, right, right before I started Generation Atomic, I was working in California with Michael Schellenberger at Environmental Progress. And uh, we, you know, organized uh, two marches for nuclear power in Chicago and uh, in California, and then a, a giant rally to save the nuclear plants in New York uh, over that short amount of time. And uh, then we kind of, we got to a, a point in the fall where, um, you know, it was like, what, what, what do we need right now? Do, Michael was thinking, I think, I think I need to write a book. And I was thinking, I think I need to do more grassroots organizing. So I uh, decided to kind of split off and, and start my own effort there. Um, and, uh, you know, I was bootstrapping for uh, almost, uh, I don't know, seven, eight months before uh, we were able to uh, get some work in Ohio um, doing door-to-door -door canvassing and uh, trying to save the nuclear plants there, um, pass a bill that would, that would do that. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, so, you know, throughout this process, a big core tenant has been volunteer activism and, and building and sustaining a culture around that. Because uh, there's a lot of passionate people out there who care about this, but they, they don't know what to do. They might not feel like they have, have the skills to be effective. And uh, we, we try to provide that with a lot that we offer. So nuclear is such a contentious issue in the United States and in most of the West, not in China, obviously, and not in Russia. Um, and it, in some ways it shouldn't be in here because we have what a, almost a 70 year history of generating electricity from nuclear. And we have more po uh, nuclear power plants in the US than in any other country, even though our shutdowns are accelerating and you know we will be surpassed if we don't change the current direction. And my coming, to um, better understanding nuclear as well. You know, I grew up with all the, the negative tropes and stereotypes like the Simpsons, you know, you have the radioactive green waste sludge that gets knocked over and you got the bumbling Homer Simpson at the, the controls of the nuclear power plant. And then, you know, I heard about the waste, heard about Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. And, um, but then I started learning more about the energy density and that all energy produces some type of waste. And I, I through some self-education, I, I came to the conclusion that um, atomic energy is the most advanced and, and is the best form that we currently have. And I, I think, you know, we could eventually get to fusion, um, but right now we've mastered this technology. And uh, yet when I bring it up to folks, um, a lot of people just are, completely uninformed mm -hmm. and are passionately against it. And something that you do with Generation Atomic is that you don't attack people. You, you kind of have this, this ability to storytell and to interact, focusing on values. And I've, I've even watched a video once um, of you where being confronted by an environmentalist who is anti-nuclear and you kind of brought it back and you're like, you're like, I understand you care about the environment. I do too. And, and trying to bring that, but could you talk a bit about the ethos of, of this campaigning and, and just the model of generation atomic when you try to, um, 
increase support and awareness and, and build education amongst the people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, when you started out, you, you mentioned that you, you kind of discovered this through research uh, on your own. And uh, I was just reflecting uh, just now how actually kind of common that story is for people that uh, have uh, come to see the importance of nuclear energy. Um, and, you know, the reason is there's not a lot of other opportunities for people to learn about this technology. It's really, you know, it's a lot of it is left to serendipity of uh, a friend sending you a, a YouTube video, like in, in my case, or, you know, you see a meme and maybe you fall down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Um, and uh, that's, that's something that I, I hope we can uh, uh, uh decrease the necessity of, or uh, I guess in, increase how often it happens when people stumble across this. Um, but yeah, I mean, all that is to say, you can't really blame people for not knowing about it, um, for uh, not liking it by default, because that's the only narrative they've ever heard. And uh, I think when you start with that kind of uh, empathy and <laughs> um, uh, seeing where people are at, remembering maybe if you were once there, what that was like, um, that's, that's a great first step. Um, and from then uh, there's uh, the two-step process we call validating and reframing, which uh, means essentially to, that when you're validating and somebody has a concern about nuclear, um, you're not saying that that concern is, uh, correct necessarily, but you're saying that it is uh, uh, totally acceptable that they have it and that they, they think that, and that's a, it's not their fault. Um, and, uh, and they're not wrong for thinking that. Um, uh, and it, if you can validate somebody well, then they will actually listen what you, <laughs> what you have to say after that. Uh, and this isn't the instinctual thing for people to do, especially engineers who would you know love to just pull up whatever statistic or fact uh, that will prove that person wrong on their phone and say, "Well, look at this." And, and I'll this beat is, you with these facts. And then, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't really go anywhere after that. And, and this is supported by you know X amount of scientists and this international body. And uh, yeah, and it and it doesn't actually. If you, you look at the the social science research on this, it doesn't matter how many credible voices you have that support your position. Uh, if the person doesn't feel heard, uh, if they don't feel like they're a, a part of the conversation and that their uh, concerns have, have been listened to. Um, so that's really the, the key thing. Uh, and then the re reframing aspect um, is, uh, is all about identifying kind of what, what that person's core concern is. So maybe if, they're, if they talk about Fukushima and Chernobyl, they're concerned about public safety, um, uh, and then, you know, if they're concerned about uh, nuclear waste, they're maybe concerned about pollution. So as, for that, as an example, um, they might say, you know, well, what about the waste? And you can say, yeah, you know, it's, um, uh, that's something we, we definitely need to, need to deal with and make sure we're, we're treating responsibly, you know, but honestly, for me, the waste is one of the best parts about nuclear because we contain uh, every bit of it and we know where it is and there's not a lot of it. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, uh, having nuclear waste means we're not having more coal waste, which is in the sky and in people's lungs and giving kids asthma. And you know, NASA looked at this in 2013 um, 
and they uh, determined that about 2 million lives have been saved uh, just by having a nuclear plant where a coal plant would have been. And then, you know, hopefully that uh, uh, helps people kind of see it in a different perspective. Well, wow, nuclear waste actually means that there isn't coal waste. And as a result, less people have uh, suffered health impacts from it. And we have technology for 50, almost 50 years that that waste, so-called waste, you can recycle it and actually create more energy and, yeah. and power from it. So, okay, the waste side, but what about solar panels? Why, why even, I mean, solar panels are clean and, and wind is clean. So why not just use that instead? How, how would you answer yeah. that? Because that, yeah, that I mean, people are always going to go there next, you know? That's, that's a question you'll hear a lot. And, and, uh, and, and obviously with the um, economic uh, improvements that, that solar especially has made over the last few years, that, that argument is getting stronger, um, I would say. Uh, uh, but, you know, I, I look at it from the perspective of an environmentalist where, um, you know, the less land, the less, uh, the less area we're using means the less animal habitat we're impacting. And uh, the, the less that we have to mine uh, per unit of energy produced uh, to make these panels and then make, make the storage systems that are required to, to make them, you know, reliable uh, power, uh, that's, that's the better for the environment. The, the less we have to use of nature means the more nature gets to use it. <laughs> um, so I, I always look at it like that, but, you know, at, at this moment, I don't think anybody can deny that we need as much clean energy as possible. And we've built up the ability to manufacture uh, so much solar so quickly and send it all over the world. And, and there are situations, you know, microgrids, things like that, where uh, solar really is the best bet. Um, and in, in sunny locations, uh, it, it, the economics can make sense. Um, so, you know, it's going to it's going to take everybody um, to get to low carbon, to get to net zero uh, as quickly as possible maybe in uh, 50 years or 60 years when you know, hopefully we're manufacturing nuclear plants and shipyards and, uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, we're you know, able to make carbon neutral synthetic fuels and all this other good stuff, we can talk about what's better for the environment and what's more feasible to do, you know, replace all the solar panels again, which we ha would have already you know, twice by that time, uh, considering their shorter lifespan. Or, uh, or, or do something else like, uh, like fission or I mean, who knows, maybe fusion by then. <laughs> yeah, and I, I always bring up the point that, you know, the solar panels, I think over 50% over are built in China, which is mostly primarily uh, funded or um, electricity is coming from coal and, and the manufacturing is coming from coal, though they are trying to replace all their coal with fission and nuclear. Yeah. So it, it has already a major carbon footprint. And then wind and solar, oftentimes are, don't produce enough electricity to be self-generating in the sense that you're almost always gonna need like another source of energy to actually use fabrication machines and things like that. And to be able to, to fabricate the metal and, and build a lot of that. And then of course, like the natural gas as being the backup uh, is a huge part of um, wind and solar that because it's not consistent, it depends on the sun and the wind that you're gonna have to have these peaker gas plants that are um, built on oftentimes fracking and if you don't like fracking uh you know natural gas and um, wind and solar are, have to they go complementary together yeah 
Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Um, and in places that already have uh, a, a bit of nuclear, it, we've seen um, we've seen examples of the renewables actually causing the nuclear plants to go out of business or the nuclear plants to run less frequently, um, and as a result, having more gas come on the grid. Uh, this happened in, in Iowa with the shutdown of Dwayne Arnold, which is directly a result of building a bunch of wind in the state and uh, which sends the electricity prices negative. And you know, it's not really nuclear plants, uh, especially of, of the era of the 60s and 70s, are not designed to ramp up and down. You know, why would you uh, really when you have the option to run just full on out breaker to breaker for uh, 18 months at a time? Um, uh, same thing in, in Ontario, where, you know, the government uh, mandated the installation of uh, several uh, gigawatts of, of wind energy, but as a result, uh, they needed more, more flexibility and ramping. And uh, we've, we've seen uh, nuclear plants uh, shut down. And now uh, I would say that it's a big factor in the, the upcoming shutdown of Pickering Nuclear Station in, in 24 and 25. Uh, just you know, and you look at the, you look at the numbers on the carbon intensity and you're like, how do we add renewables, but the power got dirtier. And that's when they're not, the policymakers aren't looking at the system uh, holistically. And it's, it's very frustrating as a nuclear advocate, because you, you don't want to come out sounding super anti renewables, because it's just, it's a good way to shut down conversations right away. But at the same time, you, you do see these examples of uh, these other clean energy sources kind of cannibalizing and, and, and pushing nuclear uh, out of the market decades before it had to be. Um, yeah, and so I, I do want to get into some more of the campaigns and, and just some of the, the current lay of the land. But before going into that, we were, before actually recording, we were talking a bit about psychology of scarcity and guilt. And my experience as a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia uh, I saw, you know, people, I, I lived in an area with no electricity, no running water, cooking over an open flame. And while it was a novelty for me, and I, uh, you know, learned a lot from it, um, I could leave whenever I wanted. I had that privilege. Well, everyone in this very impoverished area, you know, I actually saw um, children with distended bellies and things like that, because they were completely dependent on just the agriculture that they could grow in very primitive uh, manner. And I sometimes hear people talk about appropriate technology and where like, okay, they should just get a clean wood burning stove, you know, and in some ways, like, I understand where that mindset comes from. I, I may have even had that, you know, 20 years ago, or, um, but having lived in these places, everyone wants modernity, you know, that no one wants to spend seven hours hand washing their clothes, if you can just throw it in the washing machine. So. I, I just I, I want to talk a little bit about that that mindset of um, the scarcity and maybe feeling guilty about about having these things and and just this austerity agenda that continues to pop up again and again that that instead of like trying to produce abundance through cooperation we're oftentimes um, falling back with this question of like austerity and and this scarcity model so I'd love to just get your thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I think it, it has its roots in you know, Malthusianism and, and the population bomb. What, um, what is Malthusianism for the audience that may not know that? 
Oh man. Well, yeah, it goes, goes back to this, uh, this guy, uh, uh, Thomas Malthus, who essentially was, was saying that, um, if, uh, that, that humans are, are kind of the same as, as animals in that, uh, we will, uh, if we have enough food, we'll multiply and we'll eat and multiply and multiply until there's not enough food for everyone. And then there'll, there'll be massive starvation at that point. Um, so he's kind of an advocate for, uh, poor people starving to death. <laughs> and and he, he, he has this like graph where it's like food supply is linear and then human growth is exponential and growth will go over the linear point at some time. And that's when scarcity and death happens where there's no concept of like technological improvements and new tools mm -hmm. that now show that we can produce more food with less people than ever before ever imagined uh, back in his day. Yeah. Yeah, and, yet it and still comes up today, and still people are still. It bleeding. does, and even though it's you know it's well established that the more uh, energy access, uh, the birth rate actually goes down and and stabilizes, uh, and uh, the correlation between that also you know correlates with uh, education of of women and girls and opportunity and um, all all of these things are uh, beneficial uh, in a synergistic way that Malthus didn't understand, uh, you know, the population bomb, forgetting the, what's his name? Ehr Paul, Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich, who was in Obama's administration, um, I believe, or, or no, John Holdren was, and who was influenced and was the underling of uh, the population bomb, John, John Ehrlich. Yeah, and, yeah. It's, and it's still a really common thread um, that you hear in environmental circles. Um, I attend uh, meetings for folks in, uh, uh, the Climate Reality Project and um, Sunrise uh, sometimes and a, a few other environmental groups. And it seems like there's always a couple people in the room who really think that there's an awful lot of humans around. And, <laughs> uh, you know, we saw it in Planet of the Humans too. And it's just not a position that's supported uh, by the science. And it's inhumane and immoral, I think, to kind of uh, openly wonder uh, and hope for a rapid decline in, in the population. Oh, you know, but not, but not me, it was a little the deadlier. other people. Yeah, not my family, but the other people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you'll see it at the climate talks too, which uh, I've been to four of them now, um, where there's a very paternalistic view of energy where um, everybody in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, rural India and China kind of got to take one for the team, you know, they, they can have a, a solar panel and a little battery and, um, and that's all fine. But uh, having a robust electricity grid, uh, industrialization, uh, air conditioning, refrigeration at the scale that uh, Western nations do, that's, that's not going to work. Sorry. Like, <laughs> it's, and it's infuriating. Um, but uh, just a, another thing that I think we can, we can cut through by offering uh, a, a different solution, uh, a, a vision of energy abundance, of, of universal prosperity. Um, you know, now that we have nuclear energy, I really feel like scarcity is a choice that we're making, um, you know, whether or not we realize it. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other thing that will be thrown oftentimes is like, well, it costs too much. It costs too much. And the reality, though, is that the space program costs too much until the return on investment gave us everything and, and every dollar we put in the space program, we got $10 back. And I think the same will happen whether we build these huge grids in Africa or we continue to lower the 
price of electricity in the United States and, uh, and just build out the grid here as well. Yeah. Um, I was looking at some statistics the other day and I was like, how many, how many jobs are created uh, for every uh, hundred nuclear jobs? And I found out it's 66 other jobs in the community. And that's, that's quite the, the payoff um, and quite the investment in the future of a community. I mean, I, solar and, and wind projects, uh, it's all the jobs are really on the front end, the construction, and you get a few maintenance folks. Um, you know, there's a, there's a study that was done recently that just looked at the parking lots of different types of power stations. And you'll find because, because uh, a nuclear plant takes you know, between 600 and 1,000 people, it could probably take less, honestly. <laughs> Uh, we don't probably don't need that level of security and certainly more things in the future will be will be automated um, but uh, it's you know good well-paying well-paying jobs for decades uh, many of you know most of them over a hundred thousand dollars a year you don't really see that uh, in other industries um, especially for a job you can get with a high school degree you know <laughs> it's incredible so what are some of the campaigns that you're working on with Generation Atomic? I, if you go on the, the website, you have uh, one campaign looking at saving plants, jobs, and communities, uh, the American Nuclear Infrastructure Act, uh, Rare Earth Cooperative 21st Century Manufacturing Act is something that you've been um, also supporting. And as I understand it, you're, you have the 501c3 and you also have a 501c4 that you can actually do political advocacy. So I, I guess, what are some of the campaigns you're looking at? And obviously we have a new administration. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really bullish on the, the future of, of nuclear with, on, on the federal side of things. Uh, we just had the American Nuclear Infrastructure Act uh, pass out of its Senate committee late last year. Um, uh, and uh, with bipartisan support, you know, Cory Booker, Sheldon Whitehouse, you know, these Democrats from New Jersey and, and Rhode Island uh, being on the same page as Republicans uh, like uh, Barrasso and, and Crapo from places like uh, West Virginia and, and uh, Wyoming, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, in Idaho. Um, so that's, you don't see bipartisan cooperation like that these days, it seems like, which, which gives me a, a high hopes. Uh, and this bill really did a good job of addressing the, uh, the many issues the uh, U.S. nuclear industry faces. Uh, you know, one, one of which is that we can't get our advanced designs uh, assessed quickly enough. Uh, there's, there's just too much regulation, red tape, uh, to get the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to give it the stamp of approval. Um, and, you know, and we've seen the result of this. We haven't uh, actually... Uh, completed a nuclear plant uh, in this country, uh, other than I think Watts Bar was was the only exception uh, since the the NRC came into existence in in the mid 70s. And even that application was started before uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission became a thing. So, <laughs> I mean, that's you just imagine that. Yeah, and you have South Korea building plants, you know, under budget, under time. Yeah. You know, China's building plants. You even got you know, Middle Eastern countries yeah. building plants in, yeah. uh, under budget and, uh, you know, in the timeline. Russia's cranking them out at a, at a rate of uh, 36 uh, reactors a year. Um, <laughs> and we've, we've kind of lost that, that competency right now. So I think this bill will go a, a long way in rebuilding that. 
Uh, it also takes a look at uh, a targeted credit program and has a targeted credit program for uh, the existing reactors that are under financial duress. Uh, and I was just looking at the at the number. There's uh, nine in the U.S. and um, and then the Canadian plant I mentioned, Pickering. Uh, they're all going to close uh, for 2025. And when you look at that amount of power, that's that is more than all of the solar we've generated this year. Um, you know, it's a good, good chunk of the wind as well. So, you know, we're going, we're going backwards on climate if we let these plants shut down. So I'm really, really happy to see progress of that on a federal level. And, uh, on yeah. a state level, we got a long ways to go. I mean, it's not even legal to build nuclear in 12 states, including my own in Minnesota. <laughs> just, just like, it's a little bit personal, yeah. you know, especially that my state senator uh, John Marty was the guy who passed that ban in 1994. <laughs> and uh, he, well, I've talked to him about it once, but uh, he's just like, oh, I don't work on energy anymore. I'm, I'm into healthcare. <laughs> you got to clean up your mess here, man. Yeah, yeah. You're limiting our chances of success. And I, I would like to also, outside of climate, I mean, there is a national security component and there's a actual economic competition component where the United States didn't just one day wake up and say, hey, we're, you know, a quarter of the, the world's manufacturing. Now, all that has gone, most of that has gone to China, uh, and we need to rebuild these capabilities. But as China is building all these, these plants, and they have high-speed rail all over their country now, they have 20,000 kilometers uh, that they built in the last 10 years, um, the, the ability to move goods and people and to be able to manufacture at very low costs because they've invested in all these energy systems, will make their like will lock in a lot of their their competitive advantage as we continue to face things like in California where they're closing San Luis Obispo and there's blackouts going on, you know, because they they don't have enough baseload power anymore and they haven't reinvested into the the actual infrastructure. And then on top of that, you know, I'm very interested in foreign affairs and nuclear provides long term partnerships and alliances because you have an entire fuel supply uh, relationship with a country you know that can last for if they have a plant for 50 years you lock in that relationship for 50 years and China now is locking in these these relationships and so is Russia and the U.S. has been completely absent in leadership so on all those different levels I mean it, it's we we need to think much bigger too than um, you know than than just like our, our locale as well. Yeah, you know that's that's such a good point. That that was you know the central uh, one of the central thrusts of the Atoms for Peace uh, initiative that that Eisenhower kicked off. It's and it, it's a big I think undersung reason for how the United States secured so much soft power. And maybe you know you could argue it was it was one of the um, major deciding factors in helping us uh, win the Cold War even. Because um, we, we were able to forge these long-term alliances uh, that were mutually uh, economically beneficial with these other countries and build a lot of trust that we're good partners in this. And there are uh, a lot of countries that probably would rather not uh, work with Russia, uh, seeing that Russia has in the past turned off people's supply to, to gas, for example. They did that to Estonia in the early 90s. Um, and, uh, 
and they would rather not have a, a Russian boot uh, on their neck uh, in terms of their energy supply. So that really weakens your negotiating position. Uh, I guess <laughs> Germany doesn't seem to have a problem with this, but <laughs> that might have something to do with the former chancellor, uh, Gerhard Schroeder, uh, now being the uh, chairman of the Russian gas company, Gazprom. <laughs> just... So could you talk a little bit about Germany shutting its nuclear power plants and uh with this idea of doing like build outs of huge renewable uh, grids of wind and solar. And could you talk a little bit as that case study? Because yeah, you do, uh, I think, I, I've seen some uh, media that you, that Generation Atomic has at least um, created or, or promoted about Germany closing down their reactors. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's such a perfect case study to see what happens when you close your reactors down early. Um, especially because they're right next door to uh, nuclear heavy France. Um, and uh, the, you know, the results pretty clear because you're closing this reliable source of clean energy. Um, you need, uh, you need some other reliable source <laughs> uh, to back it up. So they've, they just commissioned a new coal plant, uh, Dateln 4 started up uh, last year. Uh, they kicked back their coal phase out date uh, to 2038, hopefully, fingers crossed on that. I'm, I'm a little bit uh, questionable whether they're actually going to make that. Uh, and as a result, they uh, have to bulldoze ancient forests and, and villages uh, to, to get the brown lignite coal, it's like the dirtiest coal there is, the least efficient coal there is, um, beneath it. Uh, we actually we crunched the numbers on how many nuclear plants uh, Germany would have had to keep open to match the annual output from that mine, uh, that bulldoze village in, the, in the, the Hambach forest. It was only three nuclear plants uh, that they would have just had to, had to keep to match that output. But, but no, <laughs> they've, they've decided that, uh, you know, under, under threat of uh, tsunami, I guess, <laughs> um, that they need to close their plants down. Uh, and it's, it's really bizarre uh, because Germans are some of the biggest tourists to these uh, radioactive, this radioactive spa uh, across the border in the Czech Republic, where people literally pay money to go bathe in, in uh, radium laced water uh, and, uh, and, and, and breathe radon gas. <laughs> but this nuclear plant that, that produces in a year less uh, radiation, if you live next to it, less radiation than you get from eating a banana, uh, is just too radioactive, too dangerous, too risky. It's incredible, and you and you point these facts out, and it's just it doesn't doesn't work. I guess you, you need to use the validate and reframe method. <laughs> yeah, the cognitive dissonance is just so crazy, and you know France, it's um, over seventy percent, I believe, is nuclear. It was higher. I think it, it's gone down a little bit, but it. I mean, France shows De Gaulle at one point said, you know, we're not going to deal with uh, these supply chains anymore. We're going to have our own self-sufficiency and sovereignty on our own ability to create electricity and energy. And so there was a huge build out and France has shown the world that you can, you know, base your entire economy and prosperity on a nuclear base load. And, uh, and I do love the fact that with Generation Atomic, you've done different types of interventions. And uh, can you talk a bit about the 200 pounds of bananas uh, that you, you brought <laughs> yeah, into uh, was climate talk or climate uh, event. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was uh, at the, the climate talks in uh, Bonn, uh, Germany, uh, which 
I think was probably the, the closest I've ever been to getting uh, beaten up by anti-nuclear activists. Um, uh, but anyway, one, one morning we decided that uh, we were going to go get, get to the conference super early and uh, put bananas on uh, every single uh, expo booth's table uh, with a sticker on it that's like, good morning, today your breakfast is provided by Nuclear for Climate. <laughs> Did you know this ordinary banana gives you more radiation uh, than living next to a nuclear power plant for a year? Um, so we, our, our booth was pretty busy that day. Um, uh, a lot of people had quite like, is this true? What, you know, why is this banana radioactive? Uh, did you do, did you irradiate it? Um, and then, you know, watching people's uh, minds explode when, when you say that uh, pretty much all bananas are irradiated to uh, prevent uh, pathogens uh, in, in the transfer and storage uh, <laughs> as a food safety issue. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, even more so, and they realize what, you know, how much potassium 40 uh, just your is naturally occurring in a banana and it's one of the minerals your body needs to survive. Uh, so there, yeah, we're always thinking about uh, different creative ways to get people to, to look at the subject a little bit differently. And I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll probably do that one again. <laughs> you also sing and you create some amazing songs and you have a, a beautiful operatic voice. And uh, I, I don't want to put you on the spot um, I, 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 you probably haven't warmed up your vocal cords, but do you have like a, a go-to song that, that, um, you just spontaneously burst out in the crowd. And I, I've seen just these reactions as people are being filmed and you're singing these, yeah. you know, like this beautiful you know, song. And yeah. Oh man. Um, well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of due to, to, uh, write a few more, uh, this year, but, um, you know, the, my, my go-to as of late uh, has been uh, a, a, a redux of uh, It's Now or Never, um, uh, which is originally based on a, a, a different Italian aria before that. Um, but <laughs> uh, yeah, so it, you know, it goes from, uh, uh, I change it from It's Now or Never to Clean Power Forever. So it sounds a little bit something like, uh, <clears throat> Clean power forever within our grasp. Wind, nuclear, solar up to the task. Hydro, geothermal to clean power forever. No CO2. Something like that. <laughs> bravo, bravo! That's awesome, man. That's that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a good way to uh, it's a good party trick, <laughs> good way to get some attention. Uh, and then you know if you can get people singing along too, uh, we, we did that in uh, Europe a couple times. Uh, that's such a powerful bonding experience, I think, uh, and it really says a lot to uh, passersby that this is this is a group of people that really really care and really trust each other that they're you know, going to sing a song. Um, yeah. And the art has a way to break down the barriers too. And, you know, and just that, that solidarity of singing and, and hearing music and song. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's just a, a beautifully inventive way uh, to get the message out there. And so um, a lot of respect on that. And uh, oh, thanks. Yeah. The, the latest uh, musical collaboration I did was actually a rap song. I Sorry saw that. For, <laughs> see that one. Um, and then uh, Baba Brinkman has another one coming out, uh, I think, this week. 
uh, about molten salt reactors. So that, awesome. that'll be fun. Keep your eye that. out. Yeah. <laughs> so looking ahead, uh, you know, we, we have a new administration and um, what are some of the, the focuses that uh, Generation Atomic is uh, going to be, you know, campaigning in uh, 2021? Yeah, you know, uh, there's a lot of energy around uh, this idea of the Green New Deal, uh, even though I think that that term has become politically uh, problematic for maybe Democrats and more moderate districts and certainly Republicans. Um, but the idea that you can uh, build back better, you can create lots of jobs and we can clean up our uh, energy economy um, with uh, with more nuclear, with more renewables. I think that that one is here to stay. And um, I'm, I'm thrilled to see nuclear now in the Democratic Party platform, um, have it explicitly mentioned in in, in Joe Biden's uh, I gotta get used to saying President Biden now. I love it. Yeah. President Biden's <laughs> uh, energy plans, uh, and you know, over the next uh, four years, we're 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 looking at uh, several billion dollars going into research uh, and uh, development, uh, demonstration projects, even of advanced reactors. You know, we got we got the natrium uh, reactor, which is a sodium cooled fast reactor with a molten salt storage. That's a, a TerraPower. Uh, Bill Gates's company and General uh, Electric Hitachi collaboration there. Uh, X Energy um, is is uh, another recipient of that award. They have a, a gas cooled reactor, uh, and then Canada's going gangbusters too with their SMR roadmap. Uh, and their their uh, equivalent of their NRC up there is is uh, moving along uh, quite well, with certifying multiple designs uh, of small modular reactors and even um, micro reactors. Um, Oklo is another one in the U.S. that I'm pretty excited about. So this is the 2020s is going to are going to be the decade of demonstration for advanced nuclear, and uh, and I'm I'm happy to see that uh, in some of this legislation and. Uh, some of the funding priorities uh, of, of the national labs, they're taking um, the uh, concept of like, how, how do we commercialize these and actually build them quickly and, and uh, around the world? And that there's a lot of work being, into, uh, being put into that, like getting these things on the ground in, into places where they're needed. So I think 2020s, um, thanks in part to this, uh, uh, init the initiatives of, um, you know, at least I'm not a big fan of President Trump, but at least he didn't uh, slow down the nuclear stuff very much. <laughs> I think he probably wasn't paying a whole lot of attention, <laughs> which, which is great. Um, but now that we have a, a, a lot of intention on, on addressing climate change, 2020 is going to be great for advanced reactors. And then 2030s, I think we're, we're building them like crazy. And, and the Department of Energy's uh research labs are some of the best in the world and they're government owned. And it is, it is something that we should be investing so much into because there's such this return on investment of the new technologies that we can bring to commercial use. Mm -hmm. And it's also really good to hear that the Democratic Party after 40 years has returned to uh, 1950s uh, Democrats and supporting nuclear energy. Um, so that, that's progress, I guess, in some, some ways. Mm -hmm. And then we're, we need to build uh, the, the infrastructure everywhere. The American Society for Civil Engineers, they come out with a report card every two to three years, I believe. And the last one in 2018, I think, was around like $4 trillion deficit from roads, bridges, 
electrical systems and things like that. And I just heard over the weekend, you know, the conservative Democratic Democratic Senator from West Virginia, Senator Manchin, is even talking about, you know, three, two, three, even four trillion dollars to go into infrastructure. So this could also be a time where we rebuild our infrastructure based on atomic energy and on this baseload power and, and just showing the, the ability that the U.S. can continue being a leader in this, this sector, in this field. So I, I am very optimistic, but it's going to take a lot of pushing and it's going to take a lot of work from uh, organizations like Generation Atomic to really get people who, who may be guarded and, and even anti-nuclear to at least be open to the new ideas. Yeah, that's, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I, I have a lot of faith in uh, the in our supporters and in nuclear advocates uh, around around our country that they can be a big part of this solution. Uh, so that's why you know we put on these these trainings on how to have a uh, a more effective visit with your uh, elected official, uh, a more persuasive visit, and uh, trainings on how to present to your your local you know, chapter of uh, your Rotary Club or, or Boy Scouts or whatever it, it might be, um, because we feel like the more, the broader base we can build, uh, then that means the more people uh, who are talking to their elected officials. Um, and when the question comes up, they're thinking, well, I actually have a lot of constituents that have been talking to me about this. So um, it seems I'm, you know, I'm pretty safe to make uh, in the past what might have seemed a more controversial decision in support of this. Uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, the grassroots has to play a role here. And right now it's, it's kind of neglected. We're, we, there are think tanks that are doing the thing, doing the grass tops organizing and uh, helping write policy papers and, and all of that. But we're, we're neglecting uh, the actual common man's support uh, to, to kind of back up their elected rep and say, there, there are people in your district that care about this and they will donate to you and they will vote for you and volunteer for you if you support this cause. Mm -hmm.